This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This is a podcast for parents pursuing both personal growth and family wellness. We cover relevant topics that help us reflect, make educated choices, and parent effectively. Hi, my name is Kristen Perlmutter. I am the Executive Director of Mainspring Family Wellness and a mother of three. And I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers. I'm the Clinical Director at Mainspring Family Wellness, a marriage and family therapist, and a mother of three as well. Welcome to episode 36 of Mainspring Family Wellness Podcast. We just finished this amazing book, Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis, A Journey to the Center by Dr. Ron Unbar. It was mind-blowing. It really was. And we are so thrilled today that we actually get to interview Dr. Unbar and that he's going to be on our podcast. And we're going to hear about some incredible stories uh, that he writes in the book, but also just from his practice to really inspire us and spread the word about how important hypnosis can be to treat children. Here we go. I'm excited. Welcome to episode 36, using hypnosis with children to address mental, emotional, and physical challenges. You know, I have been using conversational hypnosis in my private practice, and I've used hypnosis for myself personally. And I've often thought that parents need to know more about hypnosis as a treatment for anxiety, depression, low motivation, self-esteem. And that's why I'm just so thrilled that we have Dr. Unbar on today, who's going to go even beyond the mental and emotional issues and broaden into physical issues as well. Now, Dr. Ron Anbar uh, is FAAP, board certified in both pediatric pulmonology and general pediatrics, offering hypnosis and counseling services at Centerpoint Medicine in La Jolla, California, and Syracuse, New York. And Dr. Anbar is also a fellow and approved consultant of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. He is a leader in clinical hypnosis, and his 20 years of experience have allowed him to successfully treat over 5,000 children. He's also served as a professor of pediatrics and medicine and the director of pediatric pulmonology at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, for 21 years. And Dr. Unbar has a new book releasing in December, December 8th, in fact, called Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis, A Journey to the Center. Anybody can benefit from reading this book, and Chris and I just personally have been so touched, uh, and the Mainspring team here as well, by the stories that Dr. Unbar shares in this book. Welcome, Dr. Unbar. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. That's quite a bio. Um, tell us about your journey towards integrating hypnosis into your practice from a pediatric and pulmonology background. So I practiced as a pediatric pulmonologist for 15 years when I encountered a patient who had very bad allergies to milk products, uh, so bad that he almost died two or three times uh, from exposure to a milk product. Mm. Um, when I met him, he told me that lately, when he has been smelling cheeseburgers, he's been developing asthma attacks. Hmm. I thought that was a rather strange symptom. Um, mm. And so I said, could you imagine eating a cheeseburger, which is something that he could not do in real life? And as he did so, he developed an asthma attack in front of my mind. And I was actually a bit scared. I wondered if he would have stopped, tried to stop breathing in front of me. And I told him to stop it, and he did. Hmm. And I wondered, how did he do that? How was his imagination so powerful that just thinking about eating a cheeseburger could cause him to develop an asthma attack? And then I wondered, if you can think your way into an illness, can you think your way out? Hmm. 
And mm. soon thereafter, I found out what was going on was hypnosis. It's hmm. incredible. Well, tell us about the breadth of conditions that you have treated with hypnosis. I mean, your book is filled with so many amazing stories, and they're all really different, both mental, physical, emotional issues. And, and this, this book's really specifically about children, correct? Correct. I'm, I'm a pediatrician, so mostly about children. Well, we should say at the outset, when I first encountered hypnosis, I had to make sure I understood it wasn't like a magic show mm -hmm. or nobody's going to be quacking like a duck. Um, and, <laughs> and I learned that, that uh, hypnosis is, uh, is not at all unusual. Uh, hmm. We all do hypnosis all the time. For example, uh, if you've driven three miles down the road and said, how'd I get here? You've been in a hypnotic state. Or if you're listening to a boring podcast, not this one, uh, Never. you might start to <laughs> Never daydream. Never this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, daydreaming is a form of hypnosis. And when you watch young children play pretend games, that's hypnosis. So hypnosis is all around us. And it yeah. doesn't involve mind control. Nobody can control your mind. Um, except for you. And all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. So it only works if you want it to work. And hmm. the last thing, it's not sleep. Uh, we, from the magician's show, you think, oh, you're getting sleepy. That That's not how it works. Although hypnosis is a great tool to help you fall asleep if that's a problem you have. So in terms of the breadth of medical conditions, as a pulmonologist, I started working with patients who have asthma and shortness of breath and habitual cough. And hypnosis works really well to help them overcome and sometimes even resolve their symptoms. Um, and as I'm a pediatrician, I started, when I saw how well hypnosis worked for the children with lung issues, I offered uh, to teach children uh, with other diagnoses. And I worked with kids who have headaches, who have stomach aches, who have bedwetting, um, deal with nightmares, anxiety, hair pulling, Really, it's a gamut. Any any child or any person with chronic symptoms can benefit from hypnosis, and the reason is that there's usually a psycho a psychological overlay to chronic symptoms. Either uh, you've developed anxiety or depression because of the symptoms, or in a minority of cases, the psychological issues led to the development of the symptoms. So either way, you can benefit by learning how to regulate your own psychological reactions through hypnosis. Wow. Are there any um, stories that you can share with us that was particularly remarkable to you? <laughs> there are many, many such stories. Yeah, I know. You uh, only have, have seen 5,000 children. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure there's got to be a couple. <laughs> there is a couple. And, and every, every child is remarkable in their own way. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I love doing what I do because you take a child and teach them how to help themselves and suddenly they improve and it's because of what they've done. Uh, one story that comes to mind is a, a young man who was six years old and I met him. And he had um, been born a little bit prematurely and he had a brain bleed, um, mm. which caused him later to develop a seizure disorder. And I was seeing him for his asthma and I treated him with medication for his asthma, but I, know, I knew he had the seizures and I'd wondered for a long time whether you could use hypnosis to prevent seizures. And my thinking was um, dogs can be trained to tell their owners they're about to have a seizure. So that means there's some signal that maybe humans don't pick up on that predates a seizure. So I wondered if this young man could figure out how to 
think differently before a seizure started, maybe he would head off a seizure. So I told his mother this. I said, could I teach him some self-hypnosis? Now, his seizures were, and she said, go ahead. And his, his seizures were interesting because the brain bleed happened in the right side of his head, which is where the seizures started. And then they would sometimes spread to the left side of his brain. And then he'd have a, what's called a grand mal seizure. His whole body yes. would shake. So I told him, I asked him, this is a, an example of six-year-old hypnosis, by the way. I'll, I'll tell you an example of a teenage hypnosis a little bit. So um, I said to him, who's your favorite character, cartoon character? He said, SpongeBob SquarePants. Personally, I hate SpongeBob SquarePants, but he's helped a lot of my patients. So I asked him, what is SpongeBob made of? He says, sponge. I said, what makes him a sponge? The holes in it. I said, okay. So every night before you go to bed, put SpongeBob on your head. And if the storm comes, let the storm pass through the holes of the sponges. That was it. It was a one minute intervention. So he goes to goes home. He had that, actually a SpongeBob toy. He put the actual toy on his head, but after a while he stopped doing that and he would wrap it around his head, even in his imagination a few times and mm. told himself, when a storm comes, I'm going to let it pass. He has not had a seizure for the next eight years. I still talk to him. Um, he was having seizures every, like three times a month beforehand. And that's, that's a pretty incredible story. Yes, uh, There's actually is. a follow-up on him. He had fevers that we didn't know what the origin was probably because it came from because the brain was not regulating his temperature well. So he came back to see me and I said, um, uh, does SpongeBob have a friend? He said, yes, Patrick. I said, tell Patrick to turn on the air conditioner. And hmm. that was the end of his fevers. So that's a pretty remarkable story to share. Yes, it is. How do you get a child to get to that point, though, with that kind of receptivity for that Children intervention? Are, I mean, that's... You know, it just but, sounds so simple, Ron. You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And yet it has this a profound effect. It is simple. And children, especially young children, accept what you tell them. So um, it was just that simple. I asked his mother for permission and I gave him the image. That was it. It was not, it's not a big deal. One of the things I've learned in hypnosis is that the expectation of the therapist is played out in the patient. So if you expect it to be complicated, it's going to be complicated. If you expect it to be simple, and I do, that's how I, I think of my patients, it tends to be simple. Mm. So, I mean, this is something that parents can actually help implement with their own children as well, once they know, have these. Correct. So um, in the book, uh, every chapter, we have some things parents can do at the end of the, of the chapter um, based on what I've done with hypnosis. Um, I would tell you that I would caution you that if your child has significant uh, psychological issues, I would recommend against the parent doing this because mm -hmm. there are uh, issues that sometimes need to be worked out that might even involve the parent in some way. And then it gets complicated if the parent's trying to help. Like I, I learned early on, I should not do hypnosis uh, with my children. In fact, let me, I'll tell you a brief story on that just to illustrate it. So, um, uh, my uh, teenager was not turning in his homework mm -hmm. and, and getting poor grades. And um, I taught him, this is early on, I would not recommend doing this now. <laughs> I taught him how to do hypnosis. As a teenager, the way you can do hypnosis is uh, teach the child to imagine, a, for example, a favorite place, a relaxing place that they imagine with all of their senses, what they can see and hear, smell, 
feel and taste. And by so doing, the experience can seem real in their mind and they can become relaxed. And you teach them in hypnosis to achieve um, their relaxed state with a trigger, like making a signal with your hand that will trigger their relaxation response. And that's, that's the kind of therapy I would offer most kids to start with. And if they mm -hmm. have medical symptoms, by the way, they can use that relaxation trigger as a way to cope better or to help the medical symptom improve. So in my son's case, he learned to do that. And then I taught him the next step, which is how to allow yourself to uh, allow your subconscious to interact with, uh, in this case, his father um, but uh, or the therapist. And uh, if, if the child is gifted in hypnosis, the subconscious can even talk with the child's voice. So I asked his subconscious, why is it that he was not turning in his homework? He said, well, uh, he doesn't think very highly of himself. He thinks he's not terribly smart. And if he turned in his homework and got a poor grade, that would prove it to everyone. Mm -hmm. So he decided not to turn in his homework so nobody mm -hmm. would know. It was kind of strange kind of logic, but I've seen that in other kids since. Yeah. Um, but then a half year later, we were in some sort of argument and I told him, I know why you're not turning your homework. You're afraid you're not smart. And that's not true. You're very smart. He said, I never told you that. And I realized, oh, I shouldn't be doing hypnosis with my oh, child because <laughs> things don't mix. But yes, parents can certainly help their children imagine a calm place. And that helps mm -hmm. calm them down. I know we were going to talk about this a little bit later, but um, what's the difference then with, you know, helping your kids learn how to meditate? So meditation is another approach to changing your mindset. So hypnosis changes your mindset, meditation changes your mindset. Mm -hmm. But the, the goal of meditation is to focus on something like a breath or a mantra mm -hmm. and to clear your mind. So if thoughts come into your mind while you're meditating, you're supposed to let them go and just refocus on the mantra, for example. And you're supposed to do that for 20, 30 minutes, once or twice a day. And that is calming. So over time, uh, you can actually see structural brain changes on MRIs, on brain scans after a couple of months of meditating. So this uh, mental exercise will change the body physically. Um, hypnosis is quite different in that there is a goal, a therapeutic goal, um, for example, um, overcoming a discomfort. And so while in a state of hypnosis, uh, you will give yourself suggestions or a therapist will give you suggestions to uh, help the goal come to fruition. So uh, meditation is actually the opposite of that, is just let go of thoughts, while hypnosis is let's focus on something particularly that we want to improve on. There are practitioners, however, who combine the two. And sometimes I will use meditative suggestions in hypnosis. For example, one way of calming yourself in hypnosis is to imagine a sailboat at the bottom of your breastbone and each time you inhale, the sailboat rises. And when you exhale, the sailboat falls. And I will tell kids they can calm themselves by imagining this. So it's a hypnotic mm -hmm. suggestion, but mm -hmm. it's also something you might use in meditation. When is hypnosis most successful? And when do you also need to refer out? So uh, hypnosis is most successful when a young person or any person for that matter wants to use it. Because again, hypnosis is in control of the patient. So uh, patient needs to want to use it. Secondly, hypnosis is success, tends to be more successful in, in people who are imaginative. 
um, and are open to new ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for example, I met once a young man who was very depressed and he was sure nothing would work for him. And he was right <laughs> because he, and there's nothing, I, I couldn't help budge him. But that's unusual. Most kids are fairly open to a different way of thinking. Um, in terms of referring out, um, first of all, it's important whoever is teaching the hypnosis knows how to treat the condition they're treating without hypnosis. So, for example, even though I can teach patients to uh, disregard pain or to even undergo medical procedures with little discomfort, I, I shouldn't be pulling people's teeth out because I don't know what to do with a bloody tooth. Um, so you refer out, number one, is if you don't know how to treat the condition uh, without hypnosis. Um, if a patient has a lot of uh, psychological issues that predispose to the symptom, for example, um, they've had a traumatic event, and you as a practitioner don't know how to treat trauma, that would be a patient you'd want to refer to a trauma specialist. Now, research is showing that only a select few treatments are helpful to treating children actually with trauma. So in your professional opinion, is hypnosis a viable modality for the treatment of trauma with children? And also how so? So um, I am not a trauma specialist, and Mm -hmm. uh, therefore that would be a patient I would uh, look for uh, somebody else to help with. That being said, yes, I think that hypnosis is um, a viable way of treating trauma. Um, first, again, hypnosis teaches a child self-regulation. So, of course, that would be helpful in a child dealing with trauma. I also want to say that um, there's a lot we don't know about hypnosis. So, one of the advantages I had when I started using hypnosis is I didn't really know at the start that there was a lot of resources to teach you hypnosis. And so I sort of had to develop things on my own. And Mm -hmm. some of that is reflected in the book. I I report some things that many people who use hypnosis don't do yet. Um, And I think there's a lot of unknown potential in hypnosis and in people's minds. So I would love to see more trauma experts learning how to employ hypnosis because I'm sure they will think of new ways of dealing with kids or adults who are dealing with trauma using hypnosis, using the subconscious as a way to um, find out how to overcome the trauma, how to better deal with the traumatic event. You know, one word that you're using a lot is self-regulation. I see that in in the book. And I was hoping maybe we could actually speak a little more about that, because when I think of self-regulation in terms of uh, on my with my therapist hat on, I think in terms of ADHD, impulse control disorders. And so you know, have you ever worked with children with ADHD and have seen a real reduction in in their impulse control issues or hyperactivity? Uh, yes, I've, I've worked with a lot of kids with ADHD, and the ones who are motivated uh, do learn to use the hypnotic state to regulate their impulsivity and attention. And a number of them have been able to come off of their medications. Um, wow. But I, but that being said the child has to be motivated. So if you're dealing with an eight-year-old who could care less, uh, hypnosis is not going to make a big difference. If you're dealing with a 15-year-old who's tired of the side effects of the medications or who really is into helping him or herself, uh, hypnosis can be very, very useful. 
Um, Dr. Anbar, you've been talking about the subconscious a lot, and I'd love for our listeners to hear what the difference is between, you know, conscious, subconscious, unconscious. Um, I found that part of your patient stories to be incredibly fascinating when you were able to, you know, tap in and, and um, communicate with the subconscious. Can you can you speak to that? Absolutely. So um, I learned about subconscious. I'd read in, in books that you can do something called idiomotor signaling, which means your muscles move without conscious intent and interview the subconscious that way. So um, you can say to the patient, well, put your hand on a table. And when your subconscious wants to say yes, it'll raise one of your fingers and no is another finger. Then you can have a conversation with yes or no answers from the subconscious. The subconscious being defined as the part of your mind that you're not aware of. So um, in terms of unconscious, so I believe it was Freud talked about the unconscious as being parts of your mind you don't have access to, and the subconscious and preconscious is part of your mind that you don't have immediate access to. Um, I call it all subconscious just because it's simpler. What you're mm-hmm. aware of is conscious, what you're not aware of is subconscious. Mm-hmm. So when I first started using the idiomotor signaling, um, I got tired of asking yes or no questions after about half an hour. And then I said, would you talk to me? And the subconscious said, yes. And so the next session I had with uh, the patient that I described in the book, he's Paul, he's the one the book is dedicated to actually. He's the same kid who developed the asthma attack uh, mm-hmm. with the milk product allergy. Um, he, uh, he, he did what's called automatic talking. His subconscious talked to me and you can just have a regular sounding conversation, except that typically people don't remember what the subconscious talked about. So it's actually, from a therapeutic standpoint, a great opportunity. You could talk, like if a patient has trauma, for example, you might not want to talk directly about the trauma because it can reactivate it. Mm -hmm. But when you talk to the subconscious, you can talk about traumatic events in a non-emotional way. So you can actually, actually treatment plan with your patient like I will tell, I'll talk to the subconscious and I'll ask, well, do you think it would be a good idea to do this with the patient? And the subconscious mm-hmm. might say yes, or maybe not yet, or no, avoid that. And that actually guides my therapy. I, as an, I'm, I'm a pediatric pulmonologist, so I'm not a therapist. So I, I look at the, uh, the, ther- the subconscious as a co-therapist sometimes, and we sort of mm-hmm. treatment plan together. And it's very effective in many, many yeah. cases. Well, what I found so fascinating was one of the stories, or maybe a couple of them, but one particular, I think it was somebody that had written some poetry, and it was beautiful, these beautiful, um, you know, sonnets, I guess, and, but they, they didn't know that they had written them, and they didn't know, and they read them afterwards, and they were like, I wrote this? I, I mean, that was just mind-blowing to me. I think I've learned that a lot of creativity takes place on the subconscious level, and uh, one of the things I've taught some kids is to uh, access your subconscious for creative content. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not typical, but it happens quite a bit. Um, you know, I've heard that J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter, mm-hmm. uh, was riding on a train, and one day the Harry Potter saga came into her head like fully formed. And wow. I only have, I, I think what happened in her case is that her subconscious worked on it for quite a while before handing it over. And I think a lot of aha creativity moments comes from the subconscious. Hmm. That's really powerful. Yeah. You know, Dr. Anbar, do you encounter any stigmas around hypnosis as a treatment option? 
I don't understand why the medical community is not referring more to this treatment modality. Well, I don't understand why healthcare community is not referring more. I don't understand why psychologists <laughs> and therapists aren't using it more. Because to me, it's like, asked. I remember years ago when I first started doing this, I went to a national level conference, a hypnosis conference, and uh, the psychologist presented this complex lady with all sorts of strange symptoms. And he said, well, what would you do next? I said, well, I'd ask your subconscious what's going on and what we should do. He says, you can't do that. If you could do that, it'd be worth a Nobel Prize. I said to myself, well, actually, I am doing it. But even now, 20 years later, that I've been involved in the hypnosis society, very few people are in the psychology work are, are doing the, the subconscious work I'm describing. And the medical community, the medical community is very conservative. Yeah. Uh, hypnosis is sounds strange if you don't know about it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, people have negative associations with it. And I think that's the reason uh, things have been slow uh, for the uptake. Um, that being said, in the two cities I've lived in, Syracuse and uh, now San Diego, La Jolla, California, uh, once the referring physicians understand how well it works, there's no stigma anymore. They, I get lots mm -hmm. and lots of referrals because you don't argue with success. And I, and I found that physicians, once they understand the concept, are actually usually quite open to it. But the sure. problem is they don't know about it. And this is one of the missions of the book is to alert parents to the power of hypnosis. And I'm hoping that they will come to their physicians and say, hey, can I do this with my child? Because going from the top down and asking, you know, I've written many articles about hypnosis, but, you know, doctors are busy and it takes a long time for information to percolate through uh, the medical world. And I'm talking decades. Uh, so I thought this bottom-up approach, parents going to, to uh, physicians might help out. I think so. Yeah, and it's such a holistic approach, right, compared to always uh, having to think of medication first for so many kids. And I think a lot of parents feel disempowered that way, like, wow, my child's eight years old, and yeah. we're already on a, a medication that they may have to be on for for years to come. And they're like, "What what's going on? So it, I think this is such a, a viable treatment option that people need to consider and 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 try first. Yes. Yeah. Would you be able to, um, you know, take our read our listeners through a you know what a hypnosis session would look like, and how many ses sessions does it typically take to see results? So I, I missed the first part of your question. So if you could oh, repeat that. I said, um, just if you could take us through what a, a hypnosis, hypnosis session would look like. Yes. So um, my, my first session, I typically teach uh, the child about the power of words, because I explain to them that hypnosis uses both words and imagery. It could use, do, do other things. You can use it with breathing, but I focus words and imagery. And so we set up this little demonstration where I asked the child to stretch out their arm and resist me when I press down uh, in their elbow region. Uh, we'll see how strong they are. And then I tell the child, now please say, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak. And when they say so, the arm is uh, much easier to push down. And then I'll say, now say, I'm strong, I'm strong, I'm strong. And then the arm is hard to push down. And in fact, your listeners can try this at home. This is an easy thing to do. You just have to make sure you find a balance point so if you're much stronger than the person that you're um, pressing their arm down, you need to put your hand between the elbow and the shoulder 
And if you're much weaker than the person whose arm you're pressing down, you want to put your hand over their wrist so you have more torque. So you can. So you want to try to find a balance point where it's just too hard to push the arm down the first time. So once the children figure out that what they say affects the body, we talk about how I'm going to teach them how to use words to affect their body and mind. Um, so that that's the first session. The second session would be um, how to do full-fledged uh, self-hypnosis. And I, I teach self-hypnosis in the second session because I want the child to be empowered. Uh, traditional hypnosis is somebody lays on the couch and the, the therapist gives hypnotic suggestions. But that the control there is in the therapist. I want the child to know the, the control. Oh, well, let me track back. The, the control appears to be in the therapist's hand. It's not really. The patient's listening and following, but oftentimes the patients don't realize that it's in their hands. I, I want to dispel that right away. Uh, the child learns to self-regulate, to do self-hypnosis. And so I'll teach them. I mentioned earlier when I taught my son how he imagined being in a calm place. And I tell them, practice this every day. That's a mind-body skill. After a couple of weeks, it'll come can become automatic to you. Um, so that would be a second session. And then the third session, I might teach the subconscious communication, sometimes with the fingers, sometimes with talking, sometimes with drawing, sometimes with typing. There's all sorts of ways of talking to the subconscious. And do you feel is after three or four sessions, do people typically see results and maybe not even need to come back? Yes, people see results oftentimes after the first sessions. I've I've had I've had kids who just learned positive talk, and they come back, and they they're better, wow. <laughs> and and then sometimes just learning to relax. And, and among my medical patients, um, most of them improved a great deal. If they were going to improve, they improved a great deal within three or four sessions. Among patients who are sent for let's say anxiety, um, that tends to take longer because there are lots of different things to talk about. Um, but yes, you see improvements. And if you don't see improvements within three or four sessions, it's, you're missing something. Either the child isn't, doesn't want to work on themselves, that's one possibility, or it's a deep-rooted psychological problem that needs to be addressed before their symptoms can improve. Um, hmm. For example, in, in the pulmonary world, there's a condition called vocal cord dysfunction. Yes, you um, talked about that in your book. Yeah. Yes, I give a couple of cases because I'm a pulmonologist. I used to see it a couple of times a week, these kids. And typically what happens is the vocal cords, which are on top of the airway, are supposed to open when you take a breath in. But in these kids who are stressed, their vocal cords close when they're trying to inhale, and then it's hard to breathe. And they present with a complaint of shortness of breath. Vocal cord dysfunction is caused by stress. The most common scenario is a teenage girl athlete was stressing herself too much by pushing during her athletic endeavors. And by learning to relax, um, they overcome it immediately. So one session, one or two sessions, they're fine. However, the stress that causes vocal cord dysfunction can be more complex. So I've run into kids who've been sexually abused, and that's the cause of the vocal cord dysfunction. Or one child who tried to commit suicide and got so scared by that, um, he developed vocal cord dysfunction. Those kind of kids are not going to improve by teaching them to relax because they've been traumatized. And then the therapy has to dig into what the cause was. And that can take time. I see. Wow. That's incredible. 
you know, your book is mostly about working with children because you are a pediatrician, um, pulmonologist, pediatrician. But what experience do you have with working with adults? And are the treatment and results the same or different? Great question. So um, I work with young adults um, quite a bit because they're, they're almost, they're not quite children, but close. Um, <laughs> I've, had, I've had a handful of older adults, um, including 85-year-old lady with habit cough, who I was seeing because she had a habit cough. And um, she responded like the younger kids. She got better. Um, I think with adults, hypnosis can work really well. I think, um, again, they need to be motivated. Adults tend to have more baggage than kids do. And sometimes you have to work through that before the hypnosis can be optimally used. Um, adults also have more preconceived notions about hypnosis. So you need to maybe undo what they think it is before you can use it well. But um, I've taught, for example, the subconscious techniques to some uh, practitioners who work with adults, and they tell me that adults give them good information as well. So um, I think hypnosis works well for adults. I think it takes longer because of the baggage and preconceived notions, but in the end, they see improvement as well. Well, your book was um, incredibly inspirational to us. And, um, you know, as a parent and somebody who works in wellness and, and deals with different healing modalities, what can we do to, to help expose more people to the power of hypnosis? Well, uh, the first step is to let people know about it, which I guess we're doing in this podcast. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the next step is to um, tell our medical practitioners that we need, I want my child to have access to this. Um, you know, a child who's just diagnosed with cancer, as an example, now hypnosis does not cure cancer, but if you've been diagnosed with cancer and you're under, going to undergo intravenous line placements and blood work and chemotherapy, uh, if it's when a child learns to cope better through hypnosis, um, the whole cancer experience is very different. So whatever the diagnosis, if it's going to be long term, I think a parent needs to ask, hey, what kind of coping skills can my child be taught? Um, beyond that, uh, parents uh, can learn to use uh, some of the techniques mentioned in the book. Again, I don't talk about how to do hypnosis per se, uh, because there are nuances you can't just learn by reading about it. Uh, but for example, showing your, your child that uh, their words can make them weak or strong um, will help a child who tends to be negative about him or herself maybe rethink how they want to talk to themselves, because self-talk is really important. Mm -hmm. um, by teaching a child they can calm themselves by imagining a calm environment, you're teaching some rudimentary uh, self-regulation techniques. And that's what parents can do as well. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Umbar, for joining us today and inspiring us with your stories um, and this book. Your book was just really magical for us. So yes. we would also like to say a special thank you to Dan Ballard for making this podcast happen with his personal magic of sound engineering. <laughs> and then also a big thank you to our producer, podcast producer, Cindy Murray, for helping us make this all come together today. We're just so grateful. And thank you again for being on the show, Dr. Unbar. Best wishes to you. And follow us on Instagram at Mainspring Family for our latest class offerings, 
counseling, and services.